This is Everyday Wellness, a podcast dedicated to helping you achieve your health and wellness goals and provide practical strategies that you can use in your real life. And now, here is your host, nurse practitioner Cynthia Thurlow. Today, I had the distinct honor to connect with Dr. Philip Ovadia. He's a board-certified cardiothoracic surgeon and founder of Ovadia Heart Health. We dove deep into clinical medicine. We talked about his own journey where he went from being morbidly obese to losing over 100 pounds and wanting to prevent as many patients ending up on his OR table as possible. We talked a great deal about the influence of Gary Tobes in his health journey, the degree of metabolic health markers, the hyperpalability of the processed food industry, how 88.2% of Americans are metabolically inflexible, the role of antiquated dogma in creating the degree of metabolic inflexibility we see. We dove deep into the metabolic syndrome and labs that we need to be asking for. He also defined some of his seven principles for health and wellness. And then his approach to nutrition is all about bioindividuality, which is certainly very aligned with my own. And he really stressed the need for adequate protein intake to promote satiety. So I hope you will enjoy our conversation. It's actually a pleasure. I always love connecting with other traditionally Western medicine trained healthcare professionals who have been able to you know, shift their focus to optimizing metabolic health and metabolic flexibility in such a beautiful way. Well, I'm so delighted to have you joining us on Everyday Wellness Podcast. I got a lot of questions on Twitter in particular, people wanting to know more about how to leverage metabolic health, but I would love for you to talk to us about your journey. I know that the very beginning of your book, you mention a particular patient that really made a profound impression on you. And for the benefit of listeners, you know, I was an ER nurse in my past life. And so I did take care of a lot of very critically sick patients that we were trying to stabilize to send them to surgery. And so you mentioned about a 39 year old woman who had a dissection. And so for anyone that's listening, this is oftentimes a catastrophic event Although most of what I saw as an ER nurse were older patients, you know, people in their seventies and eighties who had never seen a doctor. I trained in nurse city, Baltimore. So there were a lot of people that never, ever went to their family healthcare professionals and really only sought care when they were very sick. But to imagine what it must be like as a cardiothoracic surgeon, seeing a 39 year old woman who had young children and have such a, just a profoundly sad outcome and clearly how much you care about your patient population. I would love for you to kind of talk a little bit about that story. Cause it really did. Even for myself, it's very humbling when you realize that sometimes very young patients can get very sick and die of very unfortunate circumstances, but also how that is woven into the way that you look at metabolic health, your own health journey. I think it's all incredibly impactful and valuable. Sure thing, Cynthia, and it's great to be here with you. And I think your focus on metabolic health and your background in cardiology is going to be, you know, the framework for us to have a very interesting discussion. And the vignette that I opened the book with, this unfortunate young woman who came in with an aortic dissection, as you said, a devastating, you know, medical problem, one of the uh, true surgical emergencies. And no matter how good we are as surgeons and, you know, no matter how good, you know, all the ER staff and everyone that that patient might come into contact with, that problem still 
has a very high mortality rate. And unfortunately, I am seeing it in patients who are younger and younger. You know, when I started my career as a heart surgeon and my training as a heart surgeon about 20 years ago, it was exceedingly unusual for me to operate on patients who were less than 60 years old. You know, even seeing patients in their 50s was considered somewhat unusual at the time. And now today, you know, 20 years later, it is not uncommon that I am operating on patients in their 40s and even their 30s. And, you know, what I have come to realize through my professional journey, through my personal journey, is that almost every patient I operate on as a heart surgeon is a failure of the medical system. Most of the problems that we deal with as heart surgeons are preventable. And unfortunately, the healthcare system has evolved in such a way that we have simply lost sight of that. And we don't even really think it's possible to prevent these problems anymore. And our focus is on, you know, only dealing with the problems once they occur. It's interesting to me because, you know, part of my own journey as a practitioner I was probably had been an MP for 10 years. So we're looking at 2010 timeframe. And at that time I had two young children and I was trying to find angles with which to connect with patients and whether I was in clinic or whether I was in the hospital seeing patients. And I was always trying to bring them back to an area of focus. And I, I kept saying to my colleagues, there's something that we're missing because I have patients that we're defining as vascular paths, meaning they've got cerebral vascular disease, they have cardiovascular disease, they have peripheral vascular disease, they have terrible brittle diabetes, and we just keep throwing more medication and it's not getting better. I don't think it's a lack of compliance. I think there's something more at bay here. And, you know, many of my colleagues were supportive that I kept talking about nutrition and food and how it all starts with food. And then there were a few, you know, more seasoned colleagues that would kind of, you know, pat me on the shoulder, like, this is cute. Cynthia thinks it all starts with food. And yet, you know, now we come full circle and we start to recognize if we look more closely at, you know, recommendations that we've been making to patients about meal frequency, about heart healthy grains, a lot about the lack of regard for, you know, stoking our metabolism, not focusing enough on lifestyle medicine. And I agree with you, there is a, a ton amount failure on so many levels. And I think providers are weary. I think most, if not all of the individuals that I have the honor of being able to connect with across social media and then at you know meetings and events that I go to, people really want to do what's best for their patients. They just oftentimes were not given the resources or the education during their programs to really know what they need to be recommending. And so I'm so very grateful that you're using your platform to be able to speak about this from a different perspective. And I think as a surgeon, you get to literally see the interior of people's bodies and be able to look at the damage that occurs over time. If someone is not cognizant of the, you know, cascade of events that occur when our, our bodies go from being able to use specific types of fuel efficiently to getting to a point in time where, you know, the standard mantra that I would say to patients was, oh, well, you know, you're just a certain age now, you know, this is to be expected, you're losing skeletal muscle mass, your metabolism, you know, needs to be stoked. And then the recognition that now a lot of the things that we have said to patients are just incredibly false and could not be farther from the truth. Although again, from good intentions, it's a lot of the education piece that was really missing. So I know that your own health journey has had a huge net impact 
on your desire to really educate your patients. And as you even mentioned in your book, encourage them to put off having surgery to really do the work up front, as opposed to heading direct. And obviously some people don't have the option of not heading to surgery, but for those who perhaps have a little bit of time where they can make some changes that will have a positive net outcome or not going directly to uh, prescription medication, I would love for you to touch on your own journey, because I think, especially coming from someone that you describe as being metabolically unhealthy to now being at a point in time where you and your wife are, are really savoring this newfound health that you have been able to embrace. Yeah, sure thing. And, you know, I want to reiterate a very important you know point that you made there. You know, I am very critical of the healthcare system, but that is not necessarily a reflection on the individual physicians. You know, mm -hmm. the physicians largely are trapped within this system and we only get educated in a certain way and we only get, you know, messaging and ongoing education, you know, that reinforces those concepts. And, you know, I was a perfect example, you know, so five years ago when I was, you know, over a decade into my career as a cardiac surgeon, I was very unhealthy. I was morbidly obese. I was pre-diabetic and I realized that I was going to end up on my own operating table at some point, so to speak. And that was, you know, with a background of a lifelong struggle with obesity, I was overweight as a child and, you know, got it continued to worsen as I went through college and medical school and all my training. And that was despite, you know, following what are all the mainstream advice, all the recommendations. You know, I grew up in a household that very much listened to the U.S. dietary guidelines. My older brother is a type one diabetic. We did not have sugar in the house. We ate all of the low fat, you know, skim milk, margarine instead of butter. And, you know, we had our healthy whole grains, our sugar-free cereals every morning. And, you know, as I said, I was very active as well as a child. I was, you know, always playing sports and riding my bike. So, and then as I went through my education and I went through school, you know, I myself tried the recommendations many times, you know, eat less, move more, eat a low fat diet. And I would have some short term success and lose a little bit of weight and invariably would end up gaining that weight back and more. And thankfully, you know, about five years ago, I started to get exposed to some alternative ideas, I guess we can call it, you know, my introduction was really via uh, Gary Tobbs. Mm -hmm. And I was fortunate you know, just by happenstance that he was a guest speaker at one of the meetings I was attending. And I immediately, you know, read his books, uh, the case, you know, the uh, why we get fat and the case against sugar at the time, and they made perfect sense to me. And I tried them eliminated sugar, I went low carb. And I had great personal success for the first time in my life, I was able to lose weight and keep it off. Now, you know, over five years, I've lost over 100 pounds, I've maintained that weight loss, I reversed my pre diabetes. And I think more importantly, I was curious enough to ask, why didn't I learn this during medical school? Mm -hmm. Why wasn't I hearing this information from the American Heart Association or, or the, you know, US dietary guidelines. And of course, you know, that leads to a lot of, uh, you know, different sort of rabbit holes you can head down. But the bottom line is, is I was seeing everyday patients who were failed by the system. I started to recognize that. And now I am on a mission to, you know, get that information to as many people as possible and help people 
learn how to stay off my operating table. Because as I said earlier, no matter how good I am as a heart surgeon, no matter how good all the other heart surgeons are out there, patients are always better off if they never need the heart surgery in the first place. No, it's so very true. And I've had the pleasure and the honor to interview Gary and Nina Takeholtz and several of the big science writers and always an honor to connect with people like that. And I think for each one of us, there's probably a book or a person that really got the process started. There was a book I read by Robin O'Brien called The Unhealthy Truth, and that changed the entire trajectory of my career as an NP, ultimately leaving clinical medicine five years ago. So I applaud you for doing the hard work because it is much, much harder to do the lifestyle piece than it is to take another pill. And, and unfortunately, I think that's part of the conditioning that we've given our patients is that a pill is going to fix things as opposed to really honing in on the nutrition piece and stress management and sleep quality and being physically active. You know, unfortunately, we've got a whole generation of individuals that think it's the latest powder or pill that's going to solve all their problems. And so I think Gary has probably had a tremendous impact on a whole generation of healthcare professionals. And my husband, who's an engineer, and it usually requires a bit of someone like Gary to convince him to move a mountain. And so he just started reading the case for keto that Gary, I think it's his latest book, and he's completely like absorbed in it and finds Gary absolutely fascinating. And I was just going to say, you know, that's one of the interesting things that I've seen along this journey is that, you know, much of the information, much of the education that I get is from non you know, physicians. And unfortunately, again, you know, the healthcare system tends to sort of, you know, look down upon, you know, the non-physicians and say, they can't possibly teach you about health. But when you look at, you know, the influences of, you know, Ivor Cummins and Dave Feldman in this space and Gary and Nina, as you mentioned, you know, they are able to look at these problems without the biases that mm-hmm. physicians, I think, you know, and other practitioners come into it with. And they are able to take that step back and really look at the data and science in a different way and come up with different conclusions that end up making a lot of sense. Well, and I think it's so important. I mean, one of the things I learned as a growing up with my parents for all the wonderful things that my parents did, they encouraged me to question a lot. And my training was much the same way. It just happened to be, it's just part of the mantra from where I went to school that you think for yourself. And I think that one of the things that we all need to do and embrace is thoughtfully thinking that perhaps what we know may not be all that there is to know and not having an ego be putting yourself in a position and saying, I'm just not willing to think outside this degree of cognitive dissonance. And and I think on many levels, we're in a time, certainly in my lifetime, where I've never seen the degree of cognitive dissonance that I've seen over the last several years. And so I, I think it's even more important for us as healthcare professionals to be open to the possibility that there might be a fresh perspective on our, you know, the way that we think about nutrition or cholesterol or any of the, you know, really In many ways, a lot of the dogma that we're starting to realize we need to really take a fresh perspective on. Now, when we're talking about metabolic health, and you know, this is a question I ask often of guests, you know, what is your definition of metabolic health? Because this comes up quite a bit. I know the formal definition, if we want to look at, you know, these are the five parameters we need to use, but really looking at 
where we have gotten off course and the things that are the lenses with which we need to examine metabolic health, where do you start from when you're talking with your patients about this? Yeah. So what I start with my patients, the simplest, you know, concept, uh, the simplest way to explain metabolic health is that, you know, when you are metabolically healthy, your body is properly utilizing the inputs that you are giving it. Mm -hmm. And that is mostly in the form of what we eat. And when we eat, you know, one of three things ultimately is going to happen to that food. Our bodies turn some of it into energy for immediate use to, you know, fuel all of our activities, all of the little cellular activities that are going on within our bodies constantly. Our bodies use that food to build and rebuild our tissues, you know, another process that's constantly going on. And then we're supposed to store some of it in case we're in situations where food, where energy is not immediately available to us. And unfortunately, you know, for various reasons, mainly the types of foods that we are primarily eating these days, that balance gets thrown off and we end up storing too much of it. And we can't even tap into that storage, both because we rarely are in a situation where, you know, food isn't available and, and, you know, we're not eating. But even when we are, you know, the hormonal, the cellular environment that's now, you know, predominant doesn't allow us to tap into those energy stores. Today's podcast is sponsored by NutriSense. It combines cutting edge technology and human expertise so you can see how your body responds to different types of nutrition, stress, exercise, sleep, and where you are in your menstrual cycle in real time. And by pairing a continuous glucose monitor with their app and expert nutritional guidance, NutriSense can help you reach your health goals. And the best part is it's not just a program where they send you the CGM and you have to figure it out on your own. Each subscription plan includes one month of free expert nutritionist support. Your nutritionist will work with you one-on-one interpreting your data and providing customized advice to help you reach your health goals. The last time I had my CGM on, my registered dietitian and I troubleshooted over some specific concerns that I had. And whether you're aiming to lose weight, stabilize your energy, or just feel better overall, NutriSense offers the guidance and support you need. And lasting sustainable change takes time and can be achieved through a longer term subscription. That's why I encourage my patients and clients to consider three, six, or 12-month subscriptions where it's actually less expensive and allows you to not only achieve your goals, but also to ensure that you stick to your healthy lifestyle for the long term. As I've mentioned before, I have found the CGMs I have used through NutriSense to be incredibly insightful, specifically to carbohydrate tolerance. I would not have known that plantains spiked my blood sugar without this information. It's also been hugely helpful for tailoring to workouts and sleep quality. And so for me, even though I am metabolically healthy, I find the insights to be particularly helpful to tailor my lifestyle changes to my blood sugar. Visit NutriSense.io slash EWP and use the code E. WP for $30 off plus one month of free nutritionist support. Be sure to let them know you're a listener of the Everyday Wellness Podcast when they ask you how you heard about them. This is one of my favorite ways to take care of my health and one of my top recommendations for all of my patients and clients. Weight gain is one of many symptoms that our hormones are in decline, especially as we navigate perimenopause into menopause. 
Dr. Anna, who is a great friend of mine, is an OBGYN who's treated thousands of women just like you and I who experience increasing dryness and even pain in the bedroom as they get older. Jolva is the solution Dr. Anna formulated for her own clients, and it has since been loved by over 100,000 women. It's a feminine cream with DHEA that helps the body regenerate moisture from the inside out. 92.8% of Jolva users experienced a significant improvement in the first four to eight weeks. Get 10% off your first purchase of Jolva by using the link dranna.com slash Cynthia. That's DrAnna.com, Cynthia, and get 10% off your first purchase. It's interesting. You know, I did a talk about a week and a half ago, and I was talking about the UNC School of Public Health study from 2018 that mentioned that 88.2% of Americans were metabolically inflexible. And I'm sure that statistic might would probably be higher now, given the last 20 plus months of the pandemic. And so on, on so many levels, I think that when we're talking about metabolic health, it's really the way that our bodies are designed to thrive. I know a lot of the information that I used to give patients about calories in, calories out, which makes me cringe. It actually makes me cringe. The recognition that we don't need to eat frequently to stoke our metabolism. In fact, it will actually do the opposite effect. You know, the more frequently we're eating, the more frequently we're consuming sugar, sweetened beverages. There was a really interesting study done recently by Sachin Panda and, and the input was an app on the phone, kind of looking at meal frequency and the bulk of the people in the study were eating uh, at a rate of eight to 10 times a day. And so that's not just sugar sweetened beverages or fatty coffees. That's the degree of meal frequency that many people think is normal, that they have a snack mid-morning after breakfast and they have a snack in the afternoon and they have a snack after dinner and not to mention all the sugary beverages that they're consuming all day long, which doesn't allow our bodies to be able to tap into fat stores for energy. We're just keeping insulin elevated all day long. And as I like to remind people, insulin's not a bad hormone. In fact, it's great hormone when it's working properly, but it's not a hormone we want to be evoking with a consistent pattern. It should be, you know, one or two meals a day, you know, maybe three at most at, you know, four to five hour intervals as opposed to this, you know, snacking culture that we have become, you know, it's interesting as my business travel started to pick up, I'm starting to observe more behaviors in airports that I had forgotten about. And there's food everywhere. Like you, before you get on the plane, while you're on the plane, I actually took a, a red eye out to Las Vegas for an event. And the gentleman who sat next to me had a, not a snack size, but a full size bag of Doritos and a Fanta orange soda at like nine 10 o'clock at night. So technically really not the red eye, but close to the red eye. And so very late flight. And I just recall, I thought to myself, there's just no way that's going to be good for anyone's metabolism, anyone's body to be eating a hyper palatable type food, you know, late in the evening. So I'm curious when you're speaking to your patients and talking to them about food choices, I'm sure the concept of hyper palatable, highly processed foods does come up because this is the other kind of meal frequency. And then I think these hyper palatable foods have really made it challenging for a lot of people to get the nutrients their bodies need and to decrease the frequency with which they're eating. Yeah, exactly. You know, and in my book, I outline, you know, seven principles of metabolic health that I, you know, work with my patients on. But, you know, first and foremost of that is eat real food. And, you know, I think that ends up having a couple of, uh, you know, effects on people. 
as you said, you know, it eliminates the processed foods, which are hyper palatable and are designed to make us eat more. You know, we should not, you know, the food company hire scientists to design these foods to make them more hungry and to make people more hungry. You know, that is their goal as a food company to sell more food. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that's evil. It just is what it is. You know, any business is there to, you know, increase their profits. The side effect is that it's going to make people unhealthy. But unfortunately, you know, that's not a concern of the food industry. The other, you know, the flip side of that, that I like to sort of emphasize with patients is when you are eating whole real food, when you're eating nutrient dense foods, it makes you hungry less often. And as you said, you know, the standard today is that people eat six, eight times a day. The only time they're not eating is when they're sleeping. And if we can get people to eat in a way that they will be hungry less often, that is going to achieve, you know, all of the, these things that we are looking for to support their metabolic health, not having their insulin levels constantly elevated. You know, I agree with you. Insulin itself isn't bad. It's just having insulin elevated all the time is bad, you know? So, and I also think that that, you know, becomes a sustainable situation for people. You know, the reason that just counting calories fails is because it ends up leaving people hungry all the time. And no matter how much willpower we think, you know, people may have, ultimately, you're going to give into hunger. You know, it is literally a life sustaining, you know, force within your body that you need to get the nutrition that your body needs to function. And that's why we get hungry. So when you can get that nutrition with nutritionally dense, real food that we have been eating as humans for, you know, the entirety of our existence, that is going to make you hungry less often. And that is going to allow your body to self-regulate so that we don't get, you know, metabolically un unhealthy. And then everything that comes downstream of that obesity, heart disease, you know, diabetes, cancer, Alzheimer's disease, all of these things that result from poor metabolic health. I couldn't agree with you more. There was a really good book that I, it's one of those, like there are five or six books, I would say that changed the whole trajectory of the direction my life was going in. And there's a book by Michael Moss, it's salt, sugar, fat. And they talk about the bliss point, you know, for the food industry scientists, they're looking for at what point can they make the food the most irresistible. And so you, you start to realize the food industry, I think is a $427 trillion a year industry almost all profitability in terms of, you know, the money that they generate. So they're really more concerned about continuing to keep us buying their products as opposed to making them more, you know, to even think about them being uh, healthful in any degree. But when you recognize that the science is working against your own innate satiety signals in your body and brain chemistry. And so when people talk about food addiction, it really is an addiction because the, all the normal biological processes of communication between your brain and your gut are rerouted. And I think that, you know, one important kind of point here is that for individuals that are addicted to these hyper palatable, highly processed foods that really struggle, there is a withdrawal period. There's no question that whether it's the dairy, whether it's the wheat, whether it's the sugar, I mean, we could make arguments or the combination of all of the above 
it can be incredibly challenging. So I love that you're focusing on the aspects of consuming foods that are aiming for satiety so that you're too full to be thinking about eating anything else as opposed to the nutrient devoid, highly processed, hyperpalatable foods that will give you the complete opposite. And it explains why in many instances, when you look at someone that's morbidly obese and you know, they bring in for me a food diary and I'm looking at all this food and, and the recognition that their brain never gets the signals that their body is full, whether it's leptin resistance, dysregulation of other hormonal processes. And I'm sure this is something you can speak to as well. You just start to realize that it all really comes down to hormonal imbalances that are driving a lot of these maladaptive behaviors as it pertains to, you know, consuming healthier foods. You know, it's kind of this reprocessing of their body, their taste buds. I know you mentioned in your book, talking about how your wife went gluten-free and then you went gluten-free and you felt so much better. And that kind of lent itself to this domino effect about continuing to make better food choices in your personal life. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, this is something else that I, you know, just point to my personal experience oftentimes when I'm talking to patients, you know, when I was morbidly obese and metabolically unhealthy, you know, food was always on my mind. I would be, you know, going into the operating room and I knew, you know, it would be a four or six hour operation. And I was worried about, you know, what can I eat now? What is going to be open later? You know, when will I eat again? And, and I just constantly thought about food. And now I barely ever think about food. You know, I eat nutritionally dense foods. I eat whole real foods primarily. And that keeps me from not being hungry. And if I'm in situations, you know, whether it be doing a long operation or, or traveling, like you mentioned, which I do often, you know, I don't have to think about eating, you know, when I happen to get hungry and there is, you know, good food available, what I consider to be good food available, I'll eat. And, uh, you know, one of the sort of most powerful things about, you know, changing these habits is taking that control. You are in control of what you are eating, not that the food is in control of you. And for most of us, unfortunately, for most people walking around, you know, as you said earlier, 88% of us are not metabolically healthy in this, in the United States, you know, the food is in control of them. I think that patient empowerment is really important. I know that when I did this recent lecture, I, I said to the entire room, which included a lot of healthcare professionals and physicians, nurses, et cetera. And I said, okay, we're going to go through what metabolic syndrome, what that represents for any of you that need you know, some refamiliarity. And I definitely want to touch on this with our listeners, but I said, before you even think about that as being the be all end all, you need to know your fasting insulin. There's other you know, biomarkers. It's really important that you're empowered. And, and I actually took a hit recently by a, a female cardiologist on social media, you know, shaking her finger at me and telling me I was harming patients because I was encouraging people to get glucometers and CGMs and to really know the net impact of sleep and stress and certain food choices on their blood sugar. And I just said, I think that's really an empowering exercise. So let's unpack what the definition of metabolic syndrome. So it's typically in most instances, it's looking at waist circumference, triglycerides, HDL, the presence of high blood pressure or hypertension, as we like to call it, and a fasting glucose. And so when you're sitting down with your patients, either in a pre-op setting, or maybe they're coming in because they've been referred by their primary care provider or another specialist, are you having these types of conversations where you're kind of defining for them? Because I know that as I was pivoting out of cardiology, I was making sure this is part of everyone's charts, but I found for a lot of people, they were like, oh, well, you know, they're at the point, the recognition that 
insulin resistance is driving almost all of these processes. So, you know, making sure our patients are empowered. So they understand like if their waist circumference as a female is greater than 35 inches inches or greater than 40 inches in a male, that's one criteria for metabolic syndrome, which is kind of an umbrella term for, you know, five or six variables that can come together. You have to have three to have the diagnosis, but important for people to understand just to be aware, like what are your numbers and what are your risks? Yeah, exactly. Uh, and if anyone, is, you know, is curious about it, I actually have a uh, simple calculator on my website. You can go to ifixhearts.co and it takes you through the five measurements and will assess your metabolic health for you. But exactly that concept is very important because, you know, in my role as a heart surgeon, these patients are coming to me and they are almost universally metabolically unhealthy and no one recognizes this. You know, it's rare to see in a chart the diagnosis of metabolic syndrome, yet they all, you know, essentially meet the criteria of it. We really have lost focus in the healthcare system of what it means to be healthy because everyone is unhealthy. And, you know, as practitioners, we look around and we see all these patients and the patients themselves look around at everyone around them and everyone else around them is unhealthy. So we no longer recognize that this is even, you know, unhealthy. And that is part of the messaging, you know, that I'm trying to get out there. I know that you're trying to get out there and so many others that we need to get back to, we need to tell our patients that it is possible to be healthy it is possible to reverse some of these conditions like type two diabetes and high blood pressure. The only answer shouldn't be, you know, take your medication Mm -hmm. with the known invariable worsening of that condition over time. You know, any endocrinologist, any physician out there who deals with type two diabetics understands that when they start the patient on, you know, the first medication, usually something like metformin, that it's going to progress over time. It's just felt to be, you know, inevitable that it will progress over time. And eventually that patient is going to end up on insulin and have all the complications that come with that, you know, the going blind, the needing amputations, the cardiovascular disease, you know, that they end up on my operating room table for. But you look at an organization like Verda Health that has published their data showing that at two years, 60% of their patients are off of medications and have normal blood glucose levels. So, you know, you wonder why this isn't, you know, more commonly known throughout the healthcare system. You know, many of my colleagues that I talked to about this, and I mentioned something like Verda Health, and they literally have never heard this before. You know, that study should have been a landmark study, and yet it was ended up having to be published in, quite frankly, a second-rate journal that no one reads, and it was never, you know, publicized by, you know, CNN and the mainstream media that it should have been publicized by. No, we should be applauding those kinds of data points. You know, I think it's really disheartening, but I'm I'm grateful to know such a large amount of physicians and advanced practice nurses and PAs and other nurses that are, you know, kind of fighting the good fight alongside some incredibly talented engineers and science writers that are trying to bring greater awareness to this. Now, one marker in particular I want to talk about, because I think it's really woefully understood. We talk about triglycerides and I recall my standard response to most of my patients was, I think you have a a processed carb problem. They're like, what are you talking about? And I would say, if you've got, you know, a triglyceride level of 300, 400, 
you know, higher than that, we've been having conversations about my concern for them developing pancreatitis, but really identifying the process by which our body will produce more and more and more triglycerides is oftentimes in the setting of not having some familial predisposition or epigenetic predisposition, but really thinking about how the dietary component to triglycerides becomes problematic. And I always kind of my mindset these days is I really like it lower. Like I don't want under 150. I want it under hundred. I want it under 75, ideally less than 50. I just think it's important for people to be aware that the focus for so long has been on LDL. And I'm sure we could probably have a conversation about particle size and advanced lipid analysis. Cause a lot of the questions that came from Twitter were, I don't understand why I should, or I should not be as concerned about LDL lipid, you know, the lipoproteins looking at density and particle size. And so maybe we can touch on that because that was a question I got asked frequently. Why is there not a focus on LDL as being a component of this metabolic syndrome? And me then saying, well, really, we need to be focused much more on low HDLs and elevated triglycerides as a marker of metabolic inflexibility. Yeah, exactly. And, you know, I agree with you. I think triglycerides are, you know, one of the most important markers. And specifically, when you start to look at the triglyceride to HDL mm-hmm. ratio, But, you know, again, one of the things I point out to my patients and to my colleagues is that when you look at those five markers of metabolic health, triglycerides and HDL are two of the five markers. LDL cholesterol is not one of the markers of metabolic health. And there's very good reason for that. You know, LDL by itself is not a very good predictor of health outcomes of any sort, cardiovascular disease or otherwise, whereas triglycerides and HDL you know, again, when you look at, you know, going back to the Framingham, you know, risk score, you know, it was kind of the first risk predictor of cardiovascular disease, LDL cholesterol was not included in it because they knew that LDL cholesterol was not a very good predictor of outcomes. Yet consistently in the studies, you know, most recently, the Women's Health Initiative uh, data that came out showed that insulin resistance, triglyceride to HDL ratio being a marker of that, was much, much more predictive of cardiovascular risk than an isolated elevated LDL cholesterol was about, you know, five to six times the risk could be attributed to insulin resistance and high triglycerides with low HDL. Mm -hmm. And quite frankly, the only reason that we became so focused on LDL cholesterol was because of the medications that lower LDL cholesterol, you know, I graduated medical school in 1998. It was, you know, kind of the height right when, you know, statins were becoming as big as they are, you know, the most prescribed medication of all time. And that remains the case, you know, 20 years later. Mm -hmm. But when you go back to the literature from the 1980s and the early 1990s, before that became the case, the risk factors for heart disease that are talked about are exactly, you know, are insulin resistance, high blood glucose levels, all of those things. And we only, you know, became so focused on LDL cholesterol when the statin pharmaceuticals became, you know, so prevalent. I have finally found the cleanest and best tasting protein powder. It's called Clean Simple Eats. And for me personally, I am 
absolutely dairy sensitive and I have been able to successfully try their protein powder with no digestive distress. I love this protein powder because it is exactly what it states. It's clean and simple. It's always grass fed with no seed oils, no junky sugary ingredients, no artificial ingredients. And it is also third party tested, non-GMO and gluten free. I think all of you know, these things are very important to me. We know that protein is one of the most important macronutrients. And for many people that are intermittent fasting, they struggle getting in enough protein in their feeding window. And each serving has 20 grams of protein, making it a perfect addition to breaking your fast or using it during the course of your feeding window. They actually have 26 delicious all-natural flavors. Personally, I like the chocolate brownie batter, but they have chocolate mint, they've got cookie dough, and they have a delicious Simply Vanilla, which you can mix with just about anything. My entire family, especially my teenagers, really like the powders, and they also enjoy the clean Simple Eats Clear Protein Drinks, which are also clean and have 20 grams of grass-fed protein each. So if you want to try this new protein powder out, I promise you will not be disappointed. You want to go to www.cleansimpleeats.com and use code wellness20 at checkout for 20% off your first order. That's cleansimpleeats.com and use code wellness20 for 20% off your first order. If you try it out, let me know what your favorite flavor is. I've been using MitoPure for the last two years, and I've added this to my routine for multiple reasons. Number one, it's a foundational supplement for me and my family. It keeps things simple, and I know that I cannot get enough of urolithin A in my food to derive the same benefits. And if you're not familiarized with urolithin A, it's a signaling molecule, but it's also actively involved in anti-aging, energy production. And I take Timeline because of its remarkable remarkable healthy aging solution that activates key critical cellular pathways in my body. It's a total game changer for healthy aging. I alternate between using the soft gels and powder depending on whether or not I'm traveling. And we know that restoring cellular energy is a key to enduring health. And this is concluded in a recent publication in Nature Metabolism, which is a top scientific journal identifying that newly energized cells may provide many more years of healthy life to people. Yet as we age, we know that cellular energy production naturally declines and reduces our prospects of optimal health and longevity. That's the great thing about Timeline is you can restore cellular energy and support healthy aging. I've noticed the biggest improvements in my energy and sleep levels. We know that Timeline is clinically shown to give our cellular energy generators, the mitochondria, new power. And when taken daily, it replaces aging mitochondria. So it upregulates mitophagy and rebuilds new ones or mitogenesis. Timeline is the only nutrient that can do what it does. So Timeline renews your cells to a more powerful state. My listeners can get 10% off your first order at Timeline dot com slash Cynthia. That's 10% off at timeline.com slash Cynthia. I know you're going to love this product. And it, you were graduating from med school when I was graduating from nursing school. So from my perspective, the, I think it's important that we're having this conversation because the first 
five to 10 years, I was an NP. You can imagine in cardiology, I mean, we'd be looking at those numbers and driving down their, driving up their statin doses and trying to deal with the side effects and recognizing the downward negative net impact on many levels of having lower total cholesterol, you know, ties in with morbidity and mortality. You know, for me, the amount of people that could tolerate whopping doses of Zocor, Crestar, et cetera, was a rarity. And more often than not, the mindset was some is better than none. So I would come up with these crazy dosing schedules of, you know, you take it twice a week because they just couldn't handle the myalgias or the muscle achiness or elevated liver enzymes. I mean, when I think about some of the things that were said in conversations, you know, you work in a hospital and occasionally you have a kind of a gallows humor. I think that's how many of us exist sometimes in very stressful environments and we would have a lot of anxious people that would come through. Understandably, if there's a concern for your heart, that's a very stressful thing. And we would jokingly say, you know, we need to have Xanax in the water. And then a few years later, it started with everyone needs a statin. We should just have statins in the water supply, which makes me cringe. It was said jokingly, but it right. makes me cringe when I think about that now, because we've gotten so far off base from what the really the area of focus should be. So I'm curious, are you using much continuous glucose monitors or CGMs, are you recommending those routinely to your patients right now? I would imagine that you are. Yes. Yes. So in my uh, metabolic health focused telemedicine practice, it is routine that patients get uh, continuous glucose monitors, usually, you know, when they start the journey and then kind of intermittently along, I'm not sure we all need to be walking around wearing these things every day, but I think they're very instructive at the beginning of someone's journey towards metabolic health, because it gives them the real time feedback that I eat this food and this is the response. And then as we're continuing to refine, you know, what they're eating and as their metabolic health is improving, you know, again, it gives that feedback. So, you know, they see the differences. They see that maybe foods at the beginning of their journey that they weren't able to tolerate. They are now, you know, have a better metabolic response to, you know, the whole real foods that we talk about, things like, you know, a handful of blueberries, for instance, you know, and someone who is metabolically unhealthy at the beginning of their journey, they're going to see a very concerning response to that handful of blueberries and their blood sugar is going to go up very high and it's going to stay elevated for two hours. And, you know, that is concerning, but then we get them metabolically healthy and, you know, six months, a year later, whatever it is, they can eat that handful of blueberries and they have a minimal sugar response, you know, minimal glucose response to it. And it comes down quickly. And I say, you know, there's no problem with eating the blueberries, you know, and this is one of the issues that, you know, certainly comes up in the low carb community is that we think that, you know, all carbs are problematic in all situations. And I disagree with that. You know, I think that when you are metabolically healthy, and if you are active and you have good muscle mass, you know, you can tolerate some carbs. They need to be the right types of carbs, the unprocessed carbs. But, you know, the continuous glucose monitor can help with that. And, you know, at the larger level, the fact that we don't utilize these continuous glucose monitors more, the fact that you got attacked by that certain female cardiologist who mm -hmm. has attacked me as well, you know, because we are trying to give this information to patients and, you know, empower patients to have this information and to use it is just emblematic of what has gone so wrong in our healthcare system these days. I could not agree with you more. And I always say knowledge is power. So the more information you have, you can work 
in conjunction with your healthcare professional and on so many levels. I think given the fact that the current system is so broken, I encourage everyone to know what your fasting insulin is, know what your fasting leptin is, make sure, you know, you're doing a little check-in. Like most of my female clients I'm working with, we're doing a CGM once a quarter or twice a year. I myself wore one for almost, you know, intermittently on and off for almost a year. And then I needed to take a break. And it was incredibly enlightening, even as a metabolically flexible individual who does carb cycle and does exercise. I was surprised at certain foods, their net impact on my blood sugar. And so you know, my beloved plantains that I would have on a higher carb day, I can have sweet potato, I can have squash. I mean, there's a lot of other starchy vegetables I can have, but for whatever reason, my body doesn't respond quite as well to plantains, but I wouldn't have known that information had I not actually gone through this. Now, one thing that I really appreciate in your book that you talk about, you talk about different types of nutritional kind of paradigms and, you know, there's a camp everywhere. And I say camp in quotes, but people have gotten very dogmatic about whether it's paleo or keto or low carb or vegan or carnivore. And I do fervently believe that throughout our lifetime, we may embrace for a period of time, one of those kind of nutritional buckets, but I think it's the combination. It's the trial and error to find what works best. You know, the listeners know that two years ago, I, two and a half years ago, I spent 13 days in the hospital, the ruptured appendix and was very sick. And when I came out, Thankfully, my gastroenterologist is completely on board and very aligned with us. And, you know, the surgeon said, just go eat a highly processed crapaholic job, you know, diet. And I said, there's just no way that's going to happen. And I went carnivore for nine months. It was literally the only thing that allowed me to get nutrition in without wrecking my digestive system. And it took about 18 months before I could handle, really handle fiber again. And I genuinely missed vegetables, but I do think that all these different nutritional philosophies, people can try them out, find out what works best. I don't think there's a one size fits all nutritional paradigm. And that's one thing I stress quite a bit, the bioindividuality. You can't apply the same kind of nutritional philosophy to every man or every woman. And certainly women kind of get a a little bit of a tough rap heading into perimenopause and menopause that, you know, some sometimes the game changes in terms of what your body can tolerate or not. But I love that you kind of addressed some of the major kind of more common, even the Mediterranean diet as options for people to consider. Yeah, exactly. You know, when I set out to write this book, you know, I intentionally was not writing the Dr. Ovedia diet plan Mm -hmm. uh, because of all those factors that you mentioned, you know, there isn't one right diet that's going to serve everyone. And even as individuals, you know, the right diet, you know, again, in sort of quotation mark is going to change over time. Uh, I think the most important thing we need to focus on is metabolic health mm-hmm. as a you know concept, as a system to guide you. And if the food you were eating is supporting your metabolic health, no matter what it ends up being, I'm in favor of it. Now we know, you know, certain generalities like processed food is not going to support anyone's metabolic health. Certain people maybe can tolerate it for a period of time, but over the long run, you know, no one's metabolic health is going to benefit from eating processed food. So that's why I like to stick with the big concepts like eat whole real food. And I like, I gave in the book, you know, some outlines of within each of these dietary strategies, there are certain things that are metabolically healthy And quite frankly, there are lots of things that are not metabolically healthy about all of these dietary strategies and, you know, find what works for you. 
And as you said, it takes experimentation. It's not going to be the same for everyone. You know, I personally do best on a mostly carnivore diet. And that's what I've maintained for the past, you know, almost three years now with various forms of low carb and keto before that. But, you know, that doesn't mean that I only work with carnivore patients. And I tell everyone that I work with that they need to be carnivore. I do truly work with, you know, vegans, carnivores and everything in between. And my focus is on metabolic health and let's find what is going to optimize your metabolic health. Well, I love that you're open to differing philosophies because I do find, as I'm sure you do as well, sometimes in the social media space, people get into one bucket and they don't even, the degree of cognitive dissonance, they don't want to consider alternatives. They, They think if it works for them, it must apply to everyone else. And I do find in some ways like keto, I'm just going to pick the ketogenic diet or, you know, lower carb diets that, you know, that becomes sometimes can be a, an area where people can struggle because let's be clear, there are very delicious, higher fat foods that you can integrate into your diet that can be a little hyper palatable. And I always think about cheese and nuts, very easy to overeat them. And you could be doing a great job with a low carb or a keto diet. And if you overeat Either of those things, which again, as I've always stressed, is easy to do. You can derail some of the efforts that you're making, but that really focusing on satiety, adjusting your macros. I remind people all the time, you know, focusing on protein, fat as a condiment. If it's not part of the, if you're having a, you know, large ribeye, you've got plenty of healthy fats in there. You don't need to have half an avocado on top of that, but, you know, really just pushing for nutrient density so that you're satiated and if people are satiated, their blood sugar is stable. They're not going to keep looking for potato chips and ice cream and everything else. Like I've been doing intermittent fasting for about six years. And the one thing I've come to find out during the course of the pandemic is a, my body does better not eating in the evening. I'm better off, you know, closing my feeding window late afternoon, which is more aligned with chronobiology and, you know, the, the sleep wake cycle. But number two, the other thing that I've come to find out is that for me, it's, a lot of animal-based protein. That is what I find most satiating and non-starchy vegetables. And for me personally, if I kind of align myself with that and kind of adjusting my carbohydrates, that works well. But I think our patients have gotten so accustomed to being told what to do that it, it can make them uncomfortable to do any experimentation. They're like that, that doesn't feel as comfortable for them as being told like, this is what you're going to eat every day. And this, I don't want you to deviate from this. So giving them permission to have the ability to do a little bit of trial and error. You may experiment with keto. You may experiment with low carb. You may experiment with the Mediterranean diet. I think everyone should be gluten-free as a rule, or even thinking about carnivore. I think all of those are great options. Yeah, I think so. And I think giving people the framework to work within, and that's what I try and do with, you know, kind of my seven principles of metabolic health allows them to find what works for them. And I think the other important part of that discussion is, you know, finding a partner, a practitioner to work with that understands that and supports that, you know, far too often, whether it be a doctor that you go to or a nutritionist or, you know, other healthcare practitioners, they are too restrictive in their, you know, kind of thinking. And they think that there's only one way to do this. And, you know, one of the things that I've said many times, you know, on social media and elsewhere is that, you know, a practitioner, a physician who isn't curious, I think is the most dangerous type of, you know, physician or practitioner. And, you know, you just need to find the people that 
can work with you on this. And that in and of itself can be a bit of a struggle, you know, a bit of a battle, because if you just go to, you know, whatever physician or practitioner that you connect with through the system, you know, just as 88% of the adults in the United States are metabolically unhealthy, probably about the same number of physicians are not interested in metabolic health. And that's how we ended up this way. So you need to seek out the practitioners that are knowledgeable about this, are curious enough, are asking those questions, and are willing to work with you to support, you know, your metabolic health journey. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. Now, I want to touch on a couple of questions that were asked uh, ahead of time on Twitter. Several people were asking, you know, what are your screening parameters? Are there specific screening tests that you like to use? And specific to coronary calcium scores, do you feel that there's value in using that as a risk screen? Yeah. So, you know, in terms of screening parameters, I I typically start with the five metabolic health, you know, screening parameters that we talked about. I, of course, you know, go deeper and add the fasting insulin levels and things like that. When we're specifically looking at, you know, coronary artery disease, I think the calcium score is a great tool but also understand that it has its limitations. You know, I don't think it's all that useful in people under 40 if it is a zero. You know, what I basically tell my patients under 40 is that, you know, if you get a zero on a CAC score, it's a great starting point, but we need to keep a close eye on it. You know, every couple of years, you know, maybe, you know, five years at the most, as opposed to if you're in your 60s and you get a zero, you know, you and the statistics show, the studies show that that's pretty much a 10-year, you know, virtual guarantee, less than 1% risk of developing a cardiac event with a CAC score of zero in your 60s. So like everything else, you know, it needs to be properly understood. It needs to be put in the context of, you know, what is your situation? Are you metabolically healthy or not? What other, you know, risk uh, factors might you have? You know, and I do frequently look at other cardiac risk measurements like the lipid subfractions, the NMR panel, the LP little a measurement, the oxidized uh, phospholipids measurements that are now available. All of these things, you know, I think should be taken into consideration. And I think the important thing is that, you know, most physicians just stop at LDL cholesterol, you know, the LDL C, uh, which is a calculated, you know, not a very great measurement of cardiovascular risk. And so we need to go beyond that. And I also, you know, stress the importance to, you know, I, as a heart surgeon, the patients that seek me out are usually, you know, worried about heart disease, but I also try and make them realize that it's not just heart disease that we, you know, need to be worried about. And that is, I think, another powerful part of the metabolic health measure. When you look at the leading causes of death in the United States, you know, seven out of the 10 every year, and last year it was eight out of 11, you know, when we add COVID in there, are relatable to metabolic health. So what I love so much about, you know, metabolic health is the patients come to me and they want to lower their risk of heart disease. And we do that by improving their metabolic health. But at the same time, we're lowering their risk of all these other chronic diseases that plague our society. Oh, it's such a valuable way to reflect on health and wellness. Now, 
I got a lot of questions about LDL and you kind of touched on the advanced lipid analysis. So let's just briefly kind of unpack particle size and buoyancy and how that impacts. And like you mentioned, the typical LDL that you see in a traditional lipid panel doesn't give you the whole picture. And this is really important because a lot of people reach out on social media because they're aware of my background. And I always say, ask for these other tests. You need more information. You don't know enough about the LDL to determine whether or not you really need to be concerned. And the tie into that is what are some of the things that can drive LDL up that may not be directly related to cardiovascular disease? Right. Yeah. So, you know, I agree when, you know, my most important message there is, you know, you need to go beyond the LDL. And if you're going to your physician and all they are taught, you know, the only number they look at is your LDL and they make all their recommendations based on that. You know, you need to push back on that or, you know, find another physician. And, you know, it can be as basic as looking at the rest of that cholesterol panel and looking at the triglycerides in the HDL and, you know, factoring that into the risk factor. For many patients, it is looking at these other, you know, particle sizes, the NMR panel, the LP little a, you know, all of those other things that becomes a very nuanced and individualized uh, discussion, but LDL shouldn't be the stopping point. And then deciding when you bring in things like a CAC score or, you know, a carotid intimal, you know, thickness uh, ultrasound test. Uh, There are lots of other things that we can be doing and should be doing. And then, as you mentioned, you know, what else influences your LDL? You know, thyroid is a very commonly missed thing that, you know, people come to me and they have a high LDL cholesterol, and especially they've been doing low carb for a long time, you know, especially women, as you know, they can be hypothyroid unrecognized and you correct the, you know, hypothyroidism and their LDL gets better. Uh, So there are lots of different ways to go about this. And the final point that I make to patients is even if we do think that LDL cholesterol is important and we need to lower your LDL cholesterol, drugs aren't the only way to do that. You know, there are modifications that can be made in your dietary strategy that can have, you know, fairly significant impacts on LDL. I mean, again, when you go to Dave Feldman and you look at his work and some of the personal experiments he's done on himself and shown, you know, 20, 30 percent reductions in LDL cholesterol in just a couple of days, it also, you know, one, it shows you that drugs aren't the only answer, but it also starts to make you question, you know, how reliable can LDL be if it can, you know, modulate so quickly with these different dietary strategies. So that's kind of my summary on LDL. And ultimately, you know, for me, LDL ends up being almost more of a screen for the physician, the type of physician they are than for the patient. You know, if your physician cannot look at anything beyond LDL, doesn't think that there's any other information that's important besides the LDL cholesterol, that's a warning sign that that's probably a physician you don't want to be working with. I could not agree more. And I say this from coming deeply from, you know, someone who has had a high LDL for most of their life. I laugh because Dave Feldman and I talk about the lean hyper responders. I hope to be able to participate with his research at some point. I concur hundred percent. You know, one of the things I learned as a new MP many years ago was if you see an abnormal lipid panel, first be thinking about 
insulin resistance, be thinking about thyroid issues. You have to fix those first and then look at it from a different lens. I agree hundred percent. This has been an amazing conversation. I'm so excited about your book. I think it's going to help so many individuals. Please let listeners know how to connect with you. How can they support your book? Obviously we will have links to your website so they can do the metabolic uh, syndrome screening, which I think is really important. Everyone should know your numbers. You should be readily familiar with them. So you will know whether or not you need to make some adjustments to your lifestyle sooner rather than later. Sure thing. So the book is available uh, widely, you know, on Amazon and other platforms. It's called stay off my operating table and uh, we'll make sure that all the links are included. I work with patients in a number of ways. My telemedicine practice, uh, I see patients from across the United States, is at ovadiahearthealth.com, O-V-A-D-I-A, hearthealth.com. And then for patients that either don't need, you know, one-on-one care or I can't work with, you know, one-on-one because of geographic or just other limitations, I also have a group coaching program. Uh, It's called the Stronger Hearts Society, and that's at strongerhearts.com. .co. And we meet twice weekly and we discuss, you know, all these issues around metabolic health and heart health. Oh, that's great. It's been such a pleasure to connect with you. Keep doing the amazing work you're doing. We need more healthcare professionals that are taking a stand and and helping to kind of flip the switch on metabolic health here in the United States and beyond. Yes. Thank you for having me on, Cynthia. I'm really excited to finally connect with you. I've been a big fan of everything you've been doing for a long time as well. So, you know, You as well. Keep up the great work. Thank you. Thanks for listening to Everyday Wellness. If you loved this episode, please leave us a rating and review. Subscribe and remember, tell a friend. And if you want to connect with us online, visit the link in the show notes. 